I was living in a dorm room still the summer after I graduated with two other friends of mine. And we pretty much sat around and played video games all summer long. And like one morning, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife and, you know, mother of my two children, uh, walked in and she saw us all sitting there on her, she was on her way to work. And we're all sitting there playing video games at like whatever, seven in the morning, eight in the morning. And she's like, have you guys slept since I was here last night? Or have you just been playing games all night long? And, you know, sheepish uh, look. And uh, she's like, you need to sit down right now and you need to apply for some jobs. <laughs> Welcome to Cognitive Revolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Okay, so in the past couple weeks, I've had several people reach out to me with questions about my experience in starting this podcast and probing around with questions about their own projects that they've been thinking about starting. And so I'd like to take some time before this interview and interviews in future episodes to break down some of the stuff that I've learned so far in doing this show. And uh, so the first thing that I want to share about doing Cognitive Revolution is that the number one most important aspect of it for me uh, has been that it has a very well-defined purpose. And so as I say uh, in the opening, Cognitive Revolution is about the personal side of the intellectual journey. And what I have in mind when I say that is that when we have someone that we look up to, a psychologist or a writer, or a scientist, uh, whatever it is, we only really have the opportunity to see the finished product. And when we compare uh, where we are at right now to where they are, that can seem like such a huge difference, such a big discrepancy, that it can seem insurmountable. And so I believe that it's really important to share these stories of personal struggles um, from people who are at the top or on their way there so that people who are going through that as part of their career right now can look to that for guidance and encouragement. So that's the thrust of it for me. And being clear on what that means and why that's important, um, it has three benefits. And the first is that it's something that I can clearly communicate to potential guests to express why I am doing the show and why they might be interested in contributing to it. So, uh, you know, none of these people have any idea who the fuck I am. So I have to give their, I have to give them a rather compelling reason to spend an hour of their very busy lives talking to me uh, on record uh, so I can put it on this show. And so uh, the second thing that having that clarity of purpose gives me is um, it gives me a clear idea of who this podcast is for, right? Uh, so this, this sort of marketing and segmentation is something that I'll talk about more in future episodes. But the basic idea is that there's a certain demographic of people for whom this podcast is designed to be useful. And it's quite clear who falls into that category and who doesn't. So I can really tailor it for that specific purpose. And then the uh, third thing is that it keeps my own motivation going, since that's the engine of this entire project. And uh, these personal narratives of scientists and thinkers, it's really something that's of more or less infinite interest to me. Um, and one of my rules, you know, for example, for interview questions and choosing guests, is that I don't ask a question that I'm not genuinely curious to hear the answer to. Um, so that's my first threshold. Uh, that anything has to cross before I put it on the show. There's really no filler in that sense. And um, but, so everything is something that I am personally curious about. 
and feel that I benefit from knowing more about. And my hope is that similarly minded people who have similar interests will then be able to connect with that, you know, if I do my job right, because we're coming from the same sort of place. And um, so for me, the biggest part of making Cognitive Revolution has, has really been about being very clear about that purpose and how that's reflected in the show. And uh, I think often it's, it's very hard to gain that sort of clarity on projects in terms of that high-level vision. And uh, in, you know, I think in anything that you're currently working on, it's a very useful exercise to begin thinking about how it connects to that broader scope. And it's not always going to be uh, immediately obvious right away. Uh, and there's definitely plenty of room for you know, a more exploratory poking around in the dark, especially if you find something interesting. But I think that clarity of purpose is really a very worthwhile thing to explore. Um, and so now let's move on to our guest today. He was certainly one of the first people that popped into my head as someone that I wanted to talk to when I began working on this show. He is the co-author of the book Do Zombies Dream of Undead Sheep? which offers a rigorous neuroscientific view of the zombie brain. He is a professor of cognitive science, neuroscience, and data science at UC San Diego. Um, he's a phenomenal mentor, which is something that we talk a lot about in this episode. And he was also Uber's first data scientist. And then he had the presence of mind to get the hell out of there before things got really sketchy. Um, so he's got a really fascinating story, and it's one that I'm very excited to share with you. So here is Bradley Voigtel. All right, so Brad, uh, I've been a, a fan of yours for a while now. I, uh, I first really encountered you when you came to give a talk at UCLA when I was an undergraduate. You were the keynote speaker at a cognitive science student conference that was going on there. And uh, you sort of, you did this thing where you sort of, you sort of hustled on stage and you dove straight into this really dense sort of mumbled talk about some sort of data analysis. And then there was a moment of pause and you, and you gave the audience uh, a knowing look. And then you said, just kidding, let's talk about zombies. And then you, then you went on to have uh, this great talk about, uh, you know, one of these uh, topics that you've sort of uh, uh, had this cool... Uh, you know, sort of foray into. And I've, anyway, I've been following you ever since then. And, and what I think is really striking about you is just how well you're able to incorporate your personality and let it come across in your work, whether you're talking about something light like zombies or something serious. So I'm looking forward to probing into that uh, a little bit today. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very nice intro. I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about zombies a little bit. So you 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 and a collaborator wrote a book, uh, basically going into the neuroscience of zombies. Uh, when did when did you first decide to apply your your neuroscience expertise to that particular problem? I, I the whole so the collaborator is uh, Kim Versteinen. Uh, he's a professor out at Carnegie Mellon, uh, also a neuroscientist, and uh, it started when we were grad students actually up at uh, UC Berkeley. Uh, a group of us used to. Um, do these movie nights uh, together on campus. You know, we'd, we'd uh, grab one of the projectors or whatever uh, and uh, uh, order some food and get some beers and watch some movies. And for a while there, we uh, got into this, you know, it was back in like 2009, 2000, yeah, probably about 2009 or so. Uh, and we got into this like zombie movie kick for whatever reason. And, you know, most of the people that we we're hanging out with were uh, neuroscientists or other scientists. Uh, friends of ours from our PhD days, and apparently, what what happens if you get a group of uh, neuroscientists together? Uh, 
drinking beers and watching zombie movies late at night as they start to get into arguments about uh, zombie brains. Uh, and uh, Tim and I decided we'd, we'd uh, as a joke one, one day, uh, formalize some of our uh, contentious arguments about why do zombies exhibit uh, the motor behaviors that they do and why are there fast zombies and sometimes slow zombies and try and break it down from what must their brains look like in order to make them move and behave the way they do. And we wrote a series of blog posts about this near Halloween, I want to say one year. Uh, and that just took off. I mean, like it got picked up by news outlets. Uh, we ended up getting a phone call uh, prior to the Society for Neuroscience Conference one year. Um, the next year uh, from Princeton University Press who had seen the blog posts and they were interested in talking to us about turning it into a book. Uh, and uh, so it really snowballed, but really the core of it, uh, like the why we did it, uh, at the time my, my wife was working for the uh, Girl Scouts of Northern California and uh, she was a software developer for them and she would do a lot of events with the Girl Scouts in the Bay Area. Uh, she was a Girl Scout herself. And uh, I was doing a lot of lectures, uh, introduction to neuroscience talks um, at Berkeley for the undergraduate uh, Cognitive Science Student Association there. And then I started working with my wife on doing events, uh, trying to get uh, Girl Scouts interested in science. And it became really clear from very early on that if I go in talking about, you know, hi, I'm Bradley Wojtek and I'm a graduate student studying the role that neural oscillations play in coordinating information. No, nobody really connects with that. It doesn't mean anything. It's a bunch of jargon that is is meaningless to, to students who've never encountered neuroscience before. Uh, but if instead I go in and I start talking about uh, zombies, which every everybody's familiar with what a zombie is, uh, and start talking about, you know, mimicking on stage how zombies move and get students to do that too, uh, and then get them to think about, well, you know, what controls movement and why you move the way you do? Well, it's the brain. And it, it became a very clear and easy uh, way into talking about neuroscience with groups of people who've never thought about the brain. Uh, and so we did it as a joke, uh, but it also was a way of engaging with people who don't have much of a science background with the idea that the brain is something that is responsible for your behavior and actions and uh, you know how does that work and how do the different parts work together. Uh, and so it just become a really um, low, low effort, not low effort, it was high effort, but low, um, low cost barrier to entry for people. Like they really enjoyed it. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, it really was just a way of talking about stuff that I find super interesting in, with people that normally I wouldn't be able to have conversations about neuroscience with, without their eyes glazing over or them getting super bored or confused. <laughs> I guess the most surprising thing about that is that you actually managed to set aside time to have fun in graduate school. <laughs> I get that a lot. And that's, um, you know, I feel like I, I've heard from my students in my lab uh, that you know, they, they mentioned that it seems like their graduate student experience is not exactly like their uh, graduate student experiences of their peers here. Um, I, I have a very, uh, I, I have a very relaxed policy about the way that my lab runs. Um, I, I enjoy my time at grad school. My, my PhD advisor up at UC Berkeley, uh, Bob Knight, uh, you know, he was a very, very relaxed guy. He was very friendly. 
uh, and his lab was and continues to be was and continues to be very successful. Uh, he's a great scientist. He's an amazing physician. Uh, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He's uh, uh, recently just won the um, like Science Outreach and Communication Award from the Society for Neuroscience because he started this uh, journal called uh, Frontiers for Young Minds, where scientists, neuroscientists, write papers that are peer reviewed by children. Um, I mean, he's he, but he's he never seems like crazy stressed. Uh, you know, he he never gets angry at anybody or raises his voice. He he somehow manages to run a very successful lab uh, that is also very friendly and welcoming and open. Uh, and so when I started my lab here at UCSD, I wanted to emulate that. Uh, and because I really, I genuinely enjoyed my PhD years. Um, there were obviously, of course, moments that were difficult and frustrating. Uh, where I felt like I, you know, wasn't going to make it and wouldn't succeed as a scientist. Uh, but I was still enjoying my social life and enjoying my work. Um, and so I don't, I, I know it sucks. I know that a lot of people have a really hard time and they really struggle. Uh, and, you know, I had those moments too. Uh, but, you know, I feel like my job as a, a lab head is not only to do really good science, but also to make sure that, uh, you know, everyone in my lab is, uh, the science is better when you're happy, <laughs> right? Your research is better. You think more clearly when you're not stressed uh, and you have like, you know, you're sleeping well, uh, you're more creative. Uh, and so I try and make sure that, yeah, everybody has to do the work that they're getting paid for. And everybody in my lab gets paid from undergraduates on up. Uh, but, uh, you know, I want to make sure that people are still getting, you know, rest and still enjoying themselves because I genuinely feel that, uh, everything is is better and the research supports that too so i try and use evidence-based management i guess <laughs> my suspicion about you is that you would uh sort of naturally bring joy to what you're doing and also try and you know uh connect with people who you know are from different backgrounds and you know uh all the way from kids uh on up so do you think that that was something that you uh, sort of brought to the table when you were a grad student and it was sort of there already and, and Bob Knight just sort of helped to bring it out of you? Or is that something that he or other people really sort of inspired you on and that you sort of grew um, sort of a, a, of its own accord at that point? That's an interesting question. I haven't. So I've been thinking a lot lately about community, oddly. Um, I'm, I'm a father of two younger kids uh, who are both now in elementary school. Uh, and I've been meeting a lot of parents around our community, and I, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of community and community building. Um, growing up, I, uh, you know, I was a single child, uh, and my parents were very young. Um, they were both teenagers when I was born, and uh, I didn't grow up with, with them for the most of my life. I grew up with my, uh, my step-grandparents, actually. Uh, and I was actually uh, very much an introvert. Um, uh, for my early teenage years. I spent a lot of time at home alone, uh, not socializing, playing video games, uh, reading books, uh, comic books, that kind of stuff. Um, but I was really lucky in my like middle to late teenage years of uh, having some really good social friends uh, that started kind of, I don't know, teaching me how to socialize a little bit better. Uh, and so when I got to college as an undergraduate, um, I was uh, very outgoing and, and extroverted by that point. Um, you know, I don't think I'm an introvert at heart. I think I, I happen to be introverted. 
like due to shyness and uncertainty uh, as a kid. But uh, I think at heart, I'm very much an extrovert. Uh, and, you know, my wife uh, calls me a social butterfly um, of the family. Uh, so, you know, I've been thinking about a lot about community lately because I felt, you know, when you when you move with a young family to a new city, you don't really know anybody and it's hard to socialize. Uh, when, I, when I started my job as a professor at UC San Diego in 2014, we moved here when my daughter was six weeks old um, and my son was two. Uh, and so, you know, my wife and I were like in the trenches of parenting, so to speak, right? Like they were just keeping, keeping alive and keeping the kids alive and clean and fed. Uh, and so uh, we didn't really have much time to socialize. And so my lab was, you know, in some ways, uh, like the only people that I interacted with on a regular basis. Um, and it was a fun place for me to be, right? Like, uh, it was an enjoyable, uh, enjoyable time, uh, with, with, uh, adults <laughs> instead of, you know, crying baby. And, uh, um, yeah, now that my kids are a little bit older, you know, we, we're, I'm finding myself now in this position of, um, like trying to, trying to make a community and, you know, it's, it's in grad school, it was the same way. I actually, like I said, I was talking about community a lot. I've been thinking about it and I'd made a big uh, post on Facebook to my friends talking about this idea of community and community building and how uh, growing up, I always wanted a community and I didn't feel like I had one. And as I've gotten older, I've, I've come to realize that community isn't something that you just passively find yourself inserted into. Uh, community is something that is an active process that you help make. Uh, you know, it's like there's this joke that like if you're sitting in traffic, angry about traffic, uh, you have to remember that uh, traffic isn't something that you're passively like a part of. You are also traffic, right? <laughs> you are making traffic too by your act of being there. Um, and I think, it, you know, it's sort of by analogy similar for community. And, uh, you know, I was talking about this and a friend sent me a message back on Facebook saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, how is this a new realization to you? Uh, you know, at Berkeley, you were uh, in the neuroscience community. Uh, you you were uh, a figurehead of that community. So, like when I started at Berkeley, we started a social group uh, that would organize events for all the new PhD students, and uh, you know, we I used to organize dinners and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, I think all that stuff bleeds over. And I don't know if it's just an inherent part of my personality or uh, if it's something like I said that I slowly learned over the years. I really enjoy people. Uh, and I like to learn about people's stories, uh, and that helps a lot. I find people to be fascinating. I mean, that's part of why I'm a neuroscientist. Uh, I love learning about people and, uh, you know, everybody's different experiences that led them to be who they are. Uh, and so, uh, it makes it kind of easy for me. <laughs> so at this, at this stage of life with your, uh, kids and your family in San Diego, what have you found to be, uh, the sort of best practices you've stumbled upon for community building maybe the ones that have surprised you most or your biggest bang for the biggest bang for your buck um i have pretty open lab meetings um so i guess there's two uh, two or three things one one would be i have open lab meetings so a lot of students from other labs uh come and sit in on our lab meetings our weekly lab meetings to hear about you know whatever work people are presenting and talking about um and undergrads too. If undergrads are interested in joining the lab, but we don't have any, uh, you know, any space for anybody. We don't have new projects for undergrads to work on. I still invite them to come and sit in our lab meetings uh, to get to get an idea of what you know what we're about. Um, and uh, that seems to be pretty good because uh, what ends up happening is 
uh, our lab becomes a little bit of like a hub uh, for different groups. So we have people from uh, like social robotics lab. There's somebody that sits in, uh, somebody, sit, uh, somebody that sits in from uh, brain computer interfacing lab, uh, somebody from a, um, two, two students from uh, a birdsong lab. Uh, and so we have a lot of different perspectives then in our lab meeting because of that. Um, the other one is um, I, I, I do not like the culture of volunteerism, uh, uh, unpaid internships uh, that are sold as uh, career building opportunities for undergraduates. So a lot of labs have volunteer undergraduates uh, that you know volunteer their time to work in the lab, uh, to work on projects. But uh, I believe that that tends to select for people who can afford to volunteer. Um, if you're volunteering, that means you're not getting paid for work. And a lot of students, especially uh, here at UC San Diego, which has a very large first-generation college uh, undergraduate population, they can't afford to volunteer their time. Uh, and so everyone in my lab, every undergraduate gets paid uh, for their work. And I find that that is uh, uh, a little bit unusual, but that, that also sort of fosters a sense of, um, I don't know, community in the lab also. Uh, so the undergraduates are very active in my lab. Uh, they recommend their friends to work in the lab who are, who are great. Uh, you know, they co-author papers with us. They present at conferences. Um, they, they nap in the lab. They use my lab as like a, a waypoint uh, between classes. Uh, the lab is fairly decently centrally located on campus. And so they'll come and hang out in between classes and stuff in my lab. Uh, so especially during the school year, it makes the lab a very social, uh, lively place where a lot of things are happening. Uh, you know, lots of different scientific conversations happening simultaneously. Um, yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> uh, I wish I could spend more time in my lab. Uh, it's, it's a fun place to be usually. You know, honestly, uh, if you have, uh, the coffee machine and the nap pods, you can expect the undergrads and the grad students to spend the, the whole day there. Why not, huh? Exactly. Yeah, no nap pods yet, but uh, that's not a bad idea. Although <laughs> then you get into like the weird Google thing where like people never leave, right? Uh, so they like live 24-7. You've got like laundry on-site, nap pods, uh, on-site food. Yeah. <laughs> I want them to leave. I don't want them to live in my lab. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit. Um, I understand that you're path to grad school wasn't exactly um, on a pristinely paved sort of straight road. Um, <laughs> could you talk a little bit about what those early years looked like for you? Yeah, so um, I actually uh, did my undergraduate at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, and that was largely because I got recruited by them a year early uh, uh, out of high school. And so um, they used to have this program called the Resident Honors Program, which uh, I think recently shut down. But uh, they tried to identify students uh, from around the United States who had excelled in undergrad uh, in high school uh, across a variety of like tests and scores and things like that. Um, and so I skipped my senior year of high school. Uh, and so I moved away to do my undergraduate. Um, geez, I guess it was like we're, two months after I turned 17. Where were you from originally? Uh, actually, uh, San Diego, of all places. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. I wasn't expecting to end up back here. I, I moved back and forth between 
um, San Diego and Arizona a lot as a kid, uh, which is where I'm from originally. Um, okay. And uh, uh, yeah, and so I moved to LA a couple months after I turned 17. Actually, uh, uh, the move-in day, uh, I called up my friend two in the morning because uh, I couldn't sleep. Uh, and I called up my buddy and I was like, Hey, I'm just ready to go. Do you want to just take me to, uh, drive me to Los Angeles now? And I'll just, we'll get there early and like stop at Denny's and have coffee until, uh, moving day officially starts. And he's like, yeah, sure. Uh, so he just, he just came over to my place and I threw my stuff in his, the back of his car and we drove to LA and, uh, uh, hung out for a while. And then, uh, I moved in and, you know, I was 17. Right. Uh, and it was really, really fun. Um, but I don't think I was quite prepared for college yet <laughs> i think i would have benefited from um you know maybe an extra year of high school but uh so i struggled it was really hard i was a physics major uh coming in i wanted to do astronomy or cosmology and um so uh that was exciting uh i worked in a lab as a first year undergraduate uh, uh that was an ultra low temperature physics lab making Bose-Einstein condensates, which uh, like I got paired with a postdoc uh, as a first year undergrad who was taking like physics one classical mechanics. And I was like way over my head and everything was confusing and I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and my friends who were physics majors seemed so much more smart and like technically capable than me uh, <laughs> that uh, I kind of just stopped trying. Uh, and I was enjoying so many other parts of my life, uh, like the socializing and making all these new friends. And, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't like a big party or anything. I just was like, would stay up late uh, until like three, four in the morning, just talking with friends in the like dorm room hall, like the, the dorm hallways. Right. Uh, and I was enjoying that stuff and, uh, school was getting harder and harder. And my grandfather was very sick at the time. And so I kept driving down to San Diego to try and take care of him on weekends and when things went bad. And so like that confluence of feeling like I was underprepared and not as smart as my friends, really enjoying other aspects of my life, like the social parts of my life and being really stressed out, like constantly moving, driving back and forth between LA and San Diego to try and take care of my uh, sick and then uh, and, and dying grandfather uh, was not a great combination for an undergraduate. Um, especially one who is honestly like very young, maybe too young to be in college. Uh, and so by the time, uh, I went to register for classes for my third year of undergrad, uh, I had been notified by the university that I was no longer enrolled because my grades had slipped for too long and I was on academic probation for too long. Um, and so that was kind of a shock and a surprise. Uh, so I went to the University of Devising and I got very lucky uh, with the uh, Deb Bernstein, who was the undergrad advisor. Uh, I'll never forget her name. Uh, she met with me multiple times and like listened to my story. Uh, and uh, she worked with the university to uh, give me one more semester to, to get my shit together, basically, and get my grades back up. And um, but unfortunately, I had I had lost my scholarships at this point. I was a scholarship student. That was how I was able to afford to go to a private university. Uh, but because my grades were, I was on academic probation too long. I lost my scholarships. 
So she also worked with me and loan officers to figure out how to cover the, the, um, the tuition in the meantime. And uh, uh, at this point, I decided I would switch my major from physics to psychology, which was a very difficult decision because at, part of my identity was wrapped up in being like a hard science person. Uh, and psychology was like a soft science. Uh, and um, yeah, it was, it was, you know, a difficult couple of years, but uh, uh, I got my grades up, not, not amazing, but I, I managed to get my grades up and uh, I started taking, uh, essentially realizing now that I put together uh, what would be considered a cognitive science degree. So although my undergraduate degree at USC was uh, psychology, uh, I was taking a lot of programming uh, classes on the side because I had a lot of friends who were recently recent graduates from computer science, computer engineering that had like pretty good jobs and were enjoying themselves and making good money. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with a psychology degree, but I should probably take programming classes uh, because at least I'll have a couple of technical skills that'll help me get a job after I graduate. Um, and so I took like three programming classes, uh, like a C++ class, uh, like an intro to Java class, and like a class in Lisp, like um, it was like AI programming or something like that. Uh, and uh, I took a couple of philosophy of mind classes, a couple of neuroscience classes. Uh, and uh, I, I, part of the way that I was able to pay for my undergraduate was I had a, uh, I was on work study uh, which is like a federal U.S. program that um, uh, helps students uh, pay for their tuition by having a job on campus. And one of those job opportunities is to work in a lab. And so I got a job as a work-study student in a neuroscience lab at USC uh, with uh, Adrian Rain, who's now, I think, at Penn. Um, and the first job that they gave me was to take a bunch of uh, text files that they had, like hundreds or even thousands of these text files of data that they had collected over the years, and they wanted to uh, wanted me to open these text files one by one, uh, copy the data out of them, and paste the data into Excel spreadsheets so that they could analyze the data. Uh, and it, it was like so much that they, you know, had said, "Okay, this is your first job. You know, it's going to take like we think it's going to take you about two weeks to finish this." Um, but because I had even a like basic rudimentary level knowledge of programming at that point, uh, I was able to write uh, some code in C to automate the open the file, extract the data, and then uh, store the data into a CSV file. Uh, and so I automated that process and like came back the next day and I was like, okay, I finished, what else can I work on? And I may as well have done a magic trick um, because they're like, wait, what do you mean you're finished? Like, there's no possible way you could have done that. And I was like, oh no, like the data were pretty well organized. So I was able to write code to do it automatically. And they're like, what, what, what are you talking about? Um, I believe and that's so, um, Clark's third law, which is that right? any uh, sufficiently advanced technology appears to be magic. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and apparently that was uh, sufficiently magic <laughs> um, or sufficiently advanced anyway. So um, I became like the tech guy in the, in the neuroscience lab uh, as an undergraduate. And I did a lot of coding and analysis and I automated a bunch of their um, like uh, data collection pipelines and stuff like that. And so even though my undergrad grades were not exemplary, uh, I had good research experience. And I didn't have any publications from that, but I got really great letters of recommendation. Uh, and so after I graduated, uh, I didn't really know what I was gonna do. Uh, and I was living in a dorm room still the summer after I graduated with two other friends of mine. 
And we pretty much sat around and played video games all summer long. And like one morning, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife and, you know, mother of my two children, uh, walked in and she saw us all sitting there on her, she was on her way to work. And we're all sitting there playing video games at like whatever, seven in the morning, eight in the morning. And she's like, have you guys slept since I was here last night? Or have you just been playing games all night long? And, you know, sheepish uh, look. And uh, she's like, you need to sit down right now and you need to apply for some jobs. Wow. That's a great come to Jesus moment. Right? Or the um, much more powerful sister of that come to future wife moment. Come to future wife moment. Exactly. Uh and what's funny is that group of guys, the three of us, uh, like one is a uh, a manager now at like, uh, you know, a major airline firm on the tech side. Another one's a uh, major uh, like product manager or head for another major tech firm in the Bay Area. Um, so all three of us eventually figured out how to get our lives together. But um, uh, I, I, I ended up getting a, a lot, very, again, very lucky in getting a job at UCLA. Uh, with Edith London uh, working uh, on uh, positron emission tomography scanning. Um, and uh, so at the Brain Mapping Center at UCLA, uh, I was trained to operate the PET scanning machine on the tech side. Uh, and uh, a, I don't know, about six months or so into the job, I want to say, um, the medical doctor so there's a, a specialty in medicine called nuclear medicine uh physician i think it is uh where you you know do the injection of the radioactive tracers uh for pet scanning and uh like the guy that was working there just stopped showing up one day uh and he sent an email saying that he'd move back to new york he just quit out of the blue and uh so i was like the person at ucla that was still trained on how to run the pet scanner um, and so I had to figure out how to find somebody that was, you know, legally allowed to inject, inject the radio tracers. So I had to find another physician or nuclear medicine technician. Um, I knew how to run the PET scanner on the technical side. Uh, and so, um, you know, it's kind of funny, I, I guess, like my early part of my career, a lot of uh, the opportunities that helped me succeed were things where something something happened and then uh you know i kind of had to step up and you know it was like a moment a moment where like i either have to step up and take charge of right now or not right uh it's either like step up and take charge of like my responsibility of my own life my own education my own grades i need to like step up and like be very proactive in finding a job i need to now like step up and uh figure out how to pay for my own loans and i need to step up and like figure out how to keep this pet scanner running um, and so, uh, you know, we kept the PET scanner running, uh, and, uh, I was able to do a little bit of, uh, research and co-authored a paper with Edith London. Uh, and, uh, at that point I started applying to grad schools and my GPA was so low that, uh, every grad school I applied to, um, rejected me, uh, except for one. And so <laughs> amusingly, I applied for, uh, the cognitive science PhD program at UC San Diego. Uh, where I now am, and I didn't get in. Uh, I applied to a couple of other places, including UCLA, didn't get in, even though I was working there. Um, but uh, Berkeley uh, invited me to give an interview, and I flew up there, and, uh, you know, I, years uh, about a year later, after I'd already started my PhD, I talked to, the, I talked to my PhD advisor, uh, Bob Knight, uh, and I was like, look, nowhere else even gave me an interview uh, my grades were terrible. 
um, why, why did Berkeley decide to give me an interview? Like what was different? Uh, and the phrase that, uh, one of the professors used, uh, that I really liked was, well, we reviewed your application and I hope, uh, I hope I've already cursed once on your podcast. Uh, I hope this is okay. But, uh, the faculty member said, we thought you were a fuck up, but a fuck up with potential. Um, so we wanted <laughs> to give you a shot. Um, and that phrase has stuck with me for, you know, what is it now? Like 15 years, <laughs> uh, just about, um, yeah, 15 years now. Uh, since that. And I think about that a lot. I think about, uh, you know, who are the people that maybe don't look great on paper in terms of their like scores, their grad, like GPAs or GREs or whatever, but um, like, who are the people that can execute, like the people that can get things done, right? And uh, well, that's kind of why I run the lab the way I do. Like, I, I don't have an expectation of what knowledge you come in the lab with, well, any kind of grades or whatever. If you're here, you hear, uh, can you get things done, right? And how, if not, like, if you're not used to, like, executing uh, and sitting down and finishing projects, like, let me help you. How do we do that? How do we get there? Because um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what I do differently. I, I get this a lot. Like, you know, I, I wrote the zombie book, like, that you talked about at the beginning. Uh, like, um, I don't work nights and weekends. Uh, you know, I know people, like, spend huge amounts of time in the lab and uh, like uh, at work, working on projects. And it is very rare that I work on a night or a weekend. I mean, I can't escape it entirely. Sometimes you've got, you know, really big deadlines due and multiple things pressing and the child gets sick. And so you have to stay home and so you can't work when you intend to do. So sometimes you can't escape it, but I really don't, I spend time with my family <laughs> and my friends, um, even, even now, uh, even pre-tenure. Um, and, uh, I, largely, I think it's just a matter of like uh, prioritizing what needs to be done uh, in order to get this project finished. What are the steps? What is the endpoint? What is the goal? Uh, and then work backwards from that endpoint. What are the steps along the way that I need to complete? And just keeping like a slow and steady pace at knocking off each one of those things. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, that is my very strange trajectory, I guess. <laughs> I love that. So uh, one thing that stands out to me about that is is that it feels like for a lot of what you were doing, it was driven by this uh, commitment to your own curiosity. And you sort of followed your nose on like, well, this is interesting to me right now. This is not. I'm going to go with the thing that's interesting. And so uh, I guess I'm curious, A, if that resonates uh, with your experience and, and B, if that, uh, how, how did that sort of influence the way you felt about some of the things that happened, right? Did they feel like failures or did they feel like you were just sort of going along with what seemed right at the time? Uh, that's that's uh, spot on. Uh, I That's advice I give people all the time too. Uh, so I guess there, there's like some complexity wrapped up in this, right? We, we often use there like people talk about following your passion and things like that. Being able to follow your passion is uh, very much a, a thing of privilege, right? Uh, growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. I had to work, uh, since I was 15 years old. Um, uh, like, you know, it, it's one thing to say, follow your passion, but it's another thing to be able to follow your passion. If what you also are doing is like, you know, my, my first jobs were, um, you know, cleaning dirty motel rooms and, uh, you know, driving a forklift. 
right? It's really hard to follow your passion when you're like working in order to like pay for rent and food. Um, but uh, as I've gotten older and uh, you know more financially stable, uh, I have absolutely been able to make decisions that allowed me to um, sort of pursue things that felt like good opportunities that seemed interesting that I would enjoy. And so what I would often, uh, the way of, uh, I've put it is um, there's been many detours in my career and those detours are intentional. Uh, so when I started uh, as an undergraduate switching over to psychology, uh, I was like, well, I really like neuroscience. So I'm gonna work in a neuroscience lab because I wanna see if I truly enjoy this. And I did, but I knew I couldn't get into grad school right away. And I also wasn't sure if I wanted to be a scientist or go into uh, you know, maybe clinical work I, I considered for a while. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, if I can get a job working in a lab full time, I'll see if like, this is something I truly, really do enjoy. And I did. And so I decided then to go to grad school. Um, and then after I finished my PhD, uh, I had a job opportunity uh, to work in a lab at one of the Max Planck Institutes in uh, Leipzig, Germany. And uh, I turned that down because my wife and I uh, it didn't feel right. We didn't want to move to Germany. Uh, we, we, it, it didn't feel like the right option. And that was a very hard decision to turn that down. And then, uh, I had a, another job opportunity, uh, as a postdoc, um, in the Bay area. And, uh, I began writing a, a NRSA grant with the PI of that lab. And we had regular meetings with our uh, future collaborators. And it became very clear uh, that the PI uh, at the time and I had a different perspective on uh, the direction of research that we should go. And so I quit before I even started. Um, I said, look, this isn't gonna work out. And so I suddenly, again, didn't have a postdoc job, uh, which is a bad place to be when you're like just finishing up your PhD. Um, and that was a hard decision. That was an even harder decision, right? Because it was like a sure thing. And then I, I had, I was like, for scientific reasons, this isn't going to work. Um, and I was complaining at a party to my friend. Uh, I had a bunch of people over for dinner one night and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do after I finish my PhD. Uh, I don't have a job lined up. And, uh, this is actually the same friend that I mentioned earlier who drove me to, uh, school at two in the morning as an undergraduate, uh, friend Curtis Chambers. Um, and he had taken a different path in life. He dropped out of undergrad uh, to go work in tech in the startup world. And he lived in Seattle for a number of years and then moved to the Bay Area um, in like the mid to late 2000s. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, you know, I just started working for this, uh, you know, new startup. Uh, and, uh, you know, you like we need a data person. Uh, and this is in like 2010. He's like, you, you, do, you do data stuff in your PhD, right? Like, do you want to just come and check it out and talk to us? Um, and so I went and I had lunch, uh, with the CEO and my friend, uh, and, uh, the small startup, this like five person startup in San Francisco in 2010 was, uh, Uber. Um, and they offered me a job as a, a, a data scientist to do data analysis, to try and optimize, uh, like the Uber pickup workflow. And, uh, so I told my PhD advisor, I was like, Hey, look, you know, I think, um, uh, my wife was pregnant with her first kid at this time. Uh, and I was like, look, I think I'm going to take this job because it's a good salary and it sounds like a really interesting opportunity. Um, and, uh, I really like data analysis. That was like the most fun part for me of the PhD. Uh, and they're offering me, you know, a full-time job to do this. And so I'm considering taking this job to, to do data analysis and help them build out their data team. 
and hire people until my son is born and then I'm going to quit uh, and like take paternity leave, but I'll be able to save up enough money from this, you know, uh, six to six to eight months of working for this company uh, to be able to afford to do that. And in that meantime, I can start looking for postdoc jobs. And my PhD advisor was like, I cannot believe you're thinking about leaving neuroscience to work for a stupid cab company. Like, what are you doing? Um, and oh. I was like, no, no, I think, I think this thing has legs. Like, I think this company is going somewhere. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, yeah, I, I left neuroscience for a while to pursue, pursue a career in data science. And uh, it was a very exciting place to be for a while, but um, not quite the right fit for me uh, for many reasons. Uh, I don't know if you've heard like some of the bad press that Uber has gotten over the years, but um, it, yeah, it, it, it wasn't for me. Uh, and so my son was born, I quit, uh, like I'd promised. And by this point I had a, a postdoc lined up, um, with Adam Gasly at UC San Francisco, uh, who was totally cool with me delaying the start of my postdoc, uh, until after, uh, like I finished with my paternity, my like self-imposed, uh, I don't want to say imposed, that sounds negative, but like, uh, self-desired, uh, paternity leave to, to spend time with my wife uh, and son. And, um, yeah. And, uh, same with the zombie book thing. Like when that thing came up in like 2012, uh, you know, I was like, Oh my God, this is really, really, really stupid. Uh, like there's no way anybody's going to give me a serious neuroscience job. Uh, if I actually write this neuroscience book, <laughs> nobody will ever take me seriously as a scientist ever again, but it was really fun. And I like, I did it because I thought it was a really great educational opportunity. Uh, to teach people and get people more engaged in, in, in neuroscience. And so did, did you ever get flack for that? Did it actually ever come up? You, you know, like... not to my face directly. Um, I am sure uh, that there has been, uh, I, I know of uh, people who have looked down upon it, uh, but nobody's ever. So you've read the, uh, I'm sure there's Amazon uh, reviews or something like that, but who knows if they're making hiring decisions at UCSD. So. Well, that was what was great. And that's one thing that was that like, for me, I was like, this is my place. Like UC San Diego is, is, is it for me when the chair of the cognitive science department, uh, at the time, uh, Marta Kutis was like very enthusiastic about the book that we were writing. Um, it wasn't a negative blotch on my academic record for her. It was, it was a positive. She, she got it and she appreciated, uh, our motivation this is why we we're doing it. Um, but anyway, like very, very long story short, I have intentionally made these moves outside of my comfort zone throughout my career, because maybe it turns out that while I do very much enjoy neuroscience, maybe what I don't know is that I truly love writing fiction or like, you know, I guess nonfiction books, or maybe what I truly would love would be an entrepreneur uh, or data scientist. Uh, and so there's no way to really know unless you, you move out. And again, that's the point of privilege and I'm allowed to do that. Now I have the, the financial stability and the social stability, uh, and the community that allows me room to make those pushes outside my comfort zone. And I keep coming back to neuroscience, uh, which is good. That means, you know, so far neuroscience truly is where my love is and that's where my heart is. Um, but there's no way you can actually know unless you you sort of move, move away from that a little bit every now and then. Uh, and so I have made those moves intentionally. And what's amazing to me is how fruitful uh, each one of those moves has been. And I don't mean fruitful in like a financial sense. I mean, 
the skills I learned while working as a data scientist, uh, the, the people that I met while, while working as a data scientist, uh, those have been very, very helpful for my career. They've heavily informed the way I think about my neuroscience research. Uh, they have absolutely changed the kinds of classes that I teach. Um, I started teaching an intro to data science class at UCSD when I first got here in 2014 uh, because it was something that I found interesting. I thought that there was you know, uh, a there there in terms of data science being a different academic domain that was worthy of uh, being a separate organization or even field of study in its own right. Um, uh, I learned a lot about, uh, you know, uh, data privacy and ethics. I have a good friend who's a philosopher who, uh, you know, gives me, uh, homeworks to read on philosophy constantly, uh, about, uh, you know, uh, epistemology and ethics and things like this. Um, all of these things have informed and shaped the way that I think, which also like shaped my career pretty tremendously. Yeah. Uh, so That's yeah, like UC San Diego started this, uh, data science institute um, uh, a year and a half ago. Uh, and we, we developed an undergraduate data science major and, uh, you know, I've been, I've been, uh, like a co-founder of all of these efforts at UC San Diego. Uh, uh, and I wouldn't have ever, those, those wouldn't have even been options in my life if I hadn't moved outside my comfort zone. And there were things that like, I didn't like about each one of those things, right? Writing a book is very stressful. It turns out, uh, and not easy. Um, and I was very worried about the perception of writing a pop science book uh, on my career. There were things at Uber that I, I didn't like, that I didn't enjoy doing, uh, that were very frustrating. Um, that, so sort of, sort of touching yeah. on some of those things, there's one thing I want to talk about, which is a few years back, you published a CV of failures, though I don't <laughs> think inconveniences uh, sort of made, made the list. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested. That got a lot of press. Were you surprised by all the attention that it got? Um, yeah, uh, I was because like, so that started with, um, uh, uh, I remember how hard every bit of my path, uh, in, in my career has been. Um, but, uh, it's very easy to forget some of those hardships, right? Like I, I personally uh, tend to have uh, optimistic outlook and a little bit of like rose tinted glasses. Um, but I remember as a first year graduate student feeling definitely out of place, like knowing for sure as a first year graduate student at UC Berkeley that uh, I was the absolute worst student in my cohort. <laughs> like uh, I know for sure that uh, I, I had the lowest GPA, that I was the worst undergraduate, uh, that, you know, I was the one that they, like the, 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 the program was taking a chance on, right? And I remember looking around at postdocs uh, and senior graduate students who I thought were awesome, were super friendly, were brilliant scientists, and looking at their CVs, uh, especially the postdocs that were going on the job market and just going like, oh my God, I, I, there, that is an impossibility for me. I can never get there. Um, like that I cannot, I look at their CVs and I see all these amazing, brilliant papers that I read the papers and they're so well done. The science is so good and thoughtful and I'm struggling even on like trying to figure out what questions I want to study 
and how to like design an experiment in E prime or whatever, like, you know, uh, uh, the experimental design software there was at the time, uh, like struggling with like how to write code in MATLAB, all of these like very basic fundamental things. And just thinking it was an impossible, like impossible target for me. Um, and as a first year graduate student, basically giving up on an academic career before my career had even started, right? Like just talking myself out of the, 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 the possibility of me even getting to do it. Um, and then a couple of years later, I started teaching neuroanatomy at Berkeley uh, with a few friends of mine uh, and my friend Aubrey Gilbert, who after her PhD went on to do uh, medical school uh, and get her MD. Uh, she taught this uh, neuroanatomy class uh, lab uh, with Professor Marion Diamond. Uh, and I started teaching that lab with her. And uh, Aubrey Gilbert used to do these uh, uh, talks called Field Dead Brains at Berkeley for the Undergraduate Cognitive Science Student Association, where she'd bring in the brain brains uh, from the neuroanatomy lab and uh, like do little brain dissections in front of the undergraduates uh, and let the undergraduates actually like hold a human brain in their hands. Um, and when she graduated, she sort of passed the torch on to me. And, uh, you know, I did a couple of those lectures for the Cogsci Student Association and uh, got to know some of the undergrads in that. And, and they would invite me to give talks about my research. And suddenly, as like a fourth year graduate student, I'm doing these events and the undergrads are like, you know, how do you how do you do it? Like, I don't understand, uh, you know, how are you so successful or something like that? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, and it dawned on me that like that thing as a first year graduate student that like seemed an impossible target for me, uh, like to be publishing and doing cool science and knowing all of these like amazingly detailed facts about the brain that I felt like I could never memorize and remember. Uh, you know, four years later, I was a little bit on the other side of that. And undergraduates were asking me, how do you do it? And that's when I came to this sort of realization that like, you know, behind every success is just a like long swath of failure <laughs> um, and frustration and self-doubt and uncertainty and so on. And uh, uh, there was an article that was um, written uh, in Nature a couple uh, a couple of years ago. It was like a little like featurette. It was like not even it was like a Nature news piece about um, uh, writing a CV of failures. Um, and, uh, it was like something I came across. I don't even remember what it was. And somebody said it to me, uh, cause they're like, Hey, this sounds like the stuff that you've been talking about. And that's when I decided I would formally include a section at the end of my CV about like every grant I didn't get every paper that, uh, didn't get published or that did eventually get published. How many times it got rejected, uh, you know, not getting into grad schools, not getting, uh, you know, job interviews, not, not X, Y, and Z. Um, and honestly, keeping track of that kind of stuff feels like a little bit of a win then. Like you, you put it down in your CV and you're like, well, okay, I didn't get this one, but uh, it's another line on my CV. Like it, it, it's evidence that I was trying, right? <laughs> right? Um, and so it even turns all of those like miserable, frustrating rejections into little pieces of things that feel good because it still feels like you're making some forward progress, right? Like you, you tried. Um, you know, it's very, it's very cliche, but my son is like playing basketball now, uh, just starting out. Right. And it's one of those things where it's like, you know, uh, you know, you, you miss every shot you don't take. Right. <laughs> um, and it's totally cliche, but it's true. And, 
as long as you can keep a positive mindset and that not let the failures beat you down uh, and take them personally, which is hard to do. Uh, I'm still bad at it. I still get angry and I still have these moments of frustration and sometimes self-doubt. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it, it's good to look back at, at these uh, uh, failures sometimes as moments of forward motion. Yeah. And another thing that you mentioned that I'm a big believer in is that I think one of the many reasons why mentorship is important is because when you are sort of going forward in your career, you sort of see everything that you haven't yet accomplished. And with that mountain of things you have accomplished, it's behind you. And you don't, you don't really think about that until you start helping someone to make that same climb that you've already made, uh, you know, through mentorship and, and helping people who are sort of following uh, in your footsteps. And then that's the only time that you really are cognizant of everything that you've sort of gotten through on that point. Totally. And I like that has helped tremendously. If I sit down with an undergraduate or graduate student who's struggling and I can sit there and look at them in the eye and say, I completely and totally understand where you're coming from. Yeah. Uh, I have and you been also there. Get this I sense, know what it feels like. Yeah. And you also get this sense that it's like, wow, what I have gotten through is really significant. Uh, and it's not always apparent that that's the case, but there's no doubt uh, that I've, I've made uh, a lot of progress here. Yeah, exactly. So uh, we're kind of bumping up against the time limit here. Do you want to call it now or do you have time for one more question? Here? Go, go ahead. It's okay. We can ask a few more questions. I actually blocked off time until um, like 10.50, so I cool. can do a couple more questions if you want. There's a couple other things that I'm interested to hear your take on. Uh, so, so one of them is that... Uh, I know you're influenced, like like so many neuroscientists, by Oliver Sacks, and yeah. uh, you know your work is is highly technical. So how do you think you've been influenced by Sacks' very human, very narrative, very qualitative approach to understanding the brain? Okay, yeah, I mean, Oliver Sacks deeply influenced the way I think about science. Um, uh, he wrote beautifully and passionately about the human experience. Um, he was able to talk about human suffering in a way that wasn't depressing. It was in some ways uh, uplifting and beautiful of, okay, this, this, you know, here is this person, I am going to diagnose them very technically break down what has gone wrong with their brains, but also get to understand their experience and them as a person so that we can take any one of these moments of uh, pain and frustration and suffering and turn it into a learning experience, which I hope you recognize is echoing what we just talked about in terms of like personal success and failure, right? Um, and I think about that a lot. When I finished my PhD, uh, I was at a conference, an in, uh, international conference on cognitive neuroscience in Turkey in 2010. And uh, during my PhD, I'd worked with people who had stroke. And I wanted to understand, uh, like, how do people recover from stroke? Uh, what, what has changed in their brains that facilitates recovery? Um, because a big part of why I do neuroscience is because I want to I want to help people. Uh, I want to reduce suffering uh, and I want to increase quality of life and happiness for people in the world. Uh, I see no reason not to. If we have the tools as humanity uh, to do that, then uh, I see no reason why we shouldn't try. 
And uh, I find deep personal fulfillment in doing that kind of work. And um, for me, I, at this conference, uh, you know, somebody's like, well, you know, you're always as a PhD going to have to find collaborators to work with patients. You'll never be able to see your own patients. Like, why don't you do uh, medical school after you do your PhD? And we had a long conversation, this physician from Stanford and I, uh, and uh, he kind of talked me into doing an uh, MD uh, in, in neurology. Uh, and I called up my wife from this conference. Uh, and I was like, I think, I think after I finish my PhD, I'm going to go to med school. Uh, and she's like, so how thrilled was she about that? (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) So my wife had, uh, had a pretty, pretty good tech job and was like supporting us financially because, you know, pay as a PhD student isn't great. Uh, and she's like, nope, nope. We are going to talk about this when you get home. Uh, (laughs) cause that's not going to fly. She's like, really, you don't, I don't think you actually want to be a doctor. Let's talk about this. And so we did, we talked about it. And um, your your friends and your family probably already think you're too smart anyway. And they're like, "Look, Brad, the last <laughs> thing you fucking need is 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 more brains." Why not? I don't know about that. I'm not <laughs> sure if that's what they'd say, but maybe. <laughs> no, but my wife, my wife was being like pretty bluntly honest with me. She's like, you know, yeah. you you don't have the constitution for this. She's like, you can't see patients day in and day out every day of your life who are suffering. Like it would eat away at you. Um, and she's right. I don't have the constitution for, uh, being a physician. Uh, like I, I, it would, it would break me, uh, to have my job be every day seeing people who are hurting. The amazing part about being a physician though, is that, you know, day in and day out, you are solely working toward ideally (laughs) solely working toward, uh, helping people who are in pain and to improve their quality of life. That to me is beautiful. I find that to be amazing. But in the conversation with my wife, uh, what we came to a conclusion uh, about was, uh, as a scientist working in a field that touches upon human experience, uh, I can work an entire 40, 50, you know, if I'm lucky, year career trying to understand something fundamental about how the brain works. And I may never discover anything that matters to anyone in any way whatsoever. Or it might be possible for me to discover one thing that helps millions of people, right? That's one of the amazing parts about science. Day in and day out, you're not seeing patients, you're not helping people. Um, But you may discover something that improves the quality of life of countless people, right? And that, that to me is amazing about basically, and I'm not talking about just like neuroscience, right? It could be something like in cosmology, you might discover, uh, you know, uh, the tools that were used to, to, you know, figure out, uh, like, uh, black holes, for example, are similar tools that were then used to help create Wi-Fi, right? Which, uh, you know, well, I don't know, socially for good or for ill, I find Wi-Fi very useful. Uh, but you might discover something that, that just fundamentally changes the human experience in hopefully a very positive way. And so for me, that was, that was sort of one of the big motivators. And that, that came from uh, reading the experiences of Oliver Sacks as a physician, of realizing, like, what is my motivation? Why am I doing this job that I do? It's not just because it's paying the bills. Uh, that is a part of it. Uh, but also because I really enjoy the potential outcome of this job. Um, now, the, the trick with that, though, is, and what I find uh, amazing about physicians 
is their ability to um, sort of keep a little bit of a separation between them and their patients, right? Um, you have to keep that professional separation. And so Oliver Sacks seemed to do that in the way that he writes, at least, in, in all of the interviews I've heard him give. Um, he does keep that professional separation from his patients when he's with the patients. But he sort of has this, like, after the fact, uh, like, decompression where he writes about his experiences in order to, like, reconcile uh, that, like, professional distance. Uh, it's very important for me to keep a work-life balance and keep my identity separate from my science. I feel like a lot of scientists especially, like, wrap their identity up in being a scientist. Um, and that's great, but it also means that then you can't stop doing your job. It's very hard for people to turn off and just go home and, like, hang out and socialize and not think about work. Um, and so I, I try and keep this, this like, idea of professional, uh, like, distance uh uh, I, I try and I try and leverage that in my thinking of my scientific life. You know, we don't have to do it as scientists like clinicians do, where they have to sort of you know keep that uh, emotional separation between themselves and their patients. But I do try and keep uh, an emotional separation between myself and my scientific identity a little bit. I love being a scientist, and I talk about it all the time, and I love my job, and I I wish everyone could be a scientist. Um, it's an amazing thing. Uh, but also, at the end of the day, I'm not. Dr. Bradley Wojtek, professor of cognitive science and neuroscience. I'm Brad, uh, you know, and I've got a wife and I've got kids and I've got friends and, you know, like hobbies and stuff like that. Right. Uh, and so I try and keep myself grounded in that sense. I don't know. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. Um, so there's one other thing that I want to touch on here. And uh, you've been very candid about your experience in getting grants and in particular struggling to land some of the bigger ones. And I know you had a recent success on that. So congratulations. <laughs> Thank um, you. But uh, yeah, would you be willing to go into some detail on what those trials, you know, looked like for you and how they took a toll on you as a scientist, especially because that's sort of a more recent set of tribulations than, you know, what you would have gone through as an undergraduate or graduate student, that sort of thing. Totally. Yeah. Um, uh, my third year of being a professor, I think it was third year, was really tough um, because I, I, I feel very strongly about the direction that my lab is taking. So, uh, you know, we, we study we study oscillations uh, 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 partly, at least that's how we started was studying, okay, what are neural oscillations? Where do they come from? Uh, what do they do, if anything, in the way that the brain uh, does information processing, computation, whatever sort of uh, analogy word you want to use? Um, and uh, like, at, in working at that, it, we, we, we went from, and this is, this is how I started my tenure talk, actually, when I was uh, up for tenure, um, was the state of my lab when I first began in 2014 was like, oscillations are amazing. Uh, let's see, let's see what they do. Uh, and by the time I gave my tenure talk, the state of my lab was, we don't even know what an oscillation is anymore. We've like talked ourselves out of like something fundamental. Now this comes from, I have to, I have to say, some of the like philosophy training side of things. Um, so I have a good friend, Roby Duncan, who's uh, uh, actually um, uh, had left undergrad for a very long time. He's going back to finishing his undergrad right now in philosophy. Um, he's the one that gives me philosophy homeworks to do. 
And a lot of our conversations center around like, you know, he, he's like, what do you mean when you say an oscillation? And I'm like, well, come on. Uh, obviously, it's like, a, you know, an oscillation in the electrical field uh, or electrical signal of the brain data. And he's like, well, what does it look like? Uh, you know, like, how do you know if it's oscillating? What does that even mean? And I was like, well, everybody knows. Like, this is so fundamental. And he's like, yeah, but how do you know? And so, you know, you go and you look at like raw brain data and you're like, well, how, how do I know if it's oscillating? Right. And so we have spent a lot of time in my lab developing these tools to better identify uh, when the brain is oscillating. And in doing so, we had to separate the oscillatory moments of data from the non-oscillatory parts of the data. And in doing that, that led us down a whole other path of what we call like there's aperiodic activity in uh, field potential data. So EEG, local field potential, uh, intracranial recordings, whatever electrical uh, or magnetic field recordings you're, you're using, um, that also carries different physiological information uh, through some of our studies. Uh, we found. And so like, I, I began to fundamentally believe very strongly that not only are we down like a pretty strong new path about uh, understanding how to separate these different aspects of our signal and tie them to different physiological functions or origins, but that in process of doing that, we have come to realize that I honestly genuinely believe that a fair amount of the oscillations research that has been published on uh, over the last many decades, tens of thousands of neuroscience papers are conflating uh, signals. So they're, they're calling things oscillations when they're not actually oscillations. It's this aperiodic non-oscillating part of the signal. Um, and so I, 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 in my lab, I've become, me and my lab have become very confident that like we, we are onto something new. Writing grants that say that though is uh, almost a non-starter, right? Because people, it, <laughs> extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. Uh, and you know, here's some like, you know, third year, second year, new professor saying, I think all of this oscillations research is wrong. Uh, that's, that's just, it's a non-starter. It just doesn't fly. Um, and so the grants that we were writing, I was trying to be very like cautious, uh, and careful and political even about the way that I said things, but they were still just going nowhere. Um, and so that starts to kind of eat away at you. You're like, oh my gosh, uh, for me. It wasn't just, I have self-doubt about my ideas. It's, I am sending my trainees down a career path that is going to lead them nowhere, right? Like they're putting their time and research effort uh, into studying this thing that nobody else cares about or believes in. And that is doing a fundamental disservice to them and their careers. And so, Running a lab, the hard part for me about not getting grants wasn't because I wasn't getting grants. Uh, it was because that's a signal to me that people who are going to make hiring decisions that will be hiring my staff as postdocs and as faculty members uh, do not consider our work to be uh, worthwhile, which then is a negative signal for their future career prospects. And so that's what ate away at me on the difficulty of getting the grants is mostly the concern about like, am I leading people's lives down a bad career path, right? Um, and that's, that's incredibly frustrating and heartbreaking. Uh, uh, but it turns out that you can't just get in front of other scientists and say, you know, I think we're all doing it wrong. Uh, you have to then give them the tools, not only evidence, but also the tools to allow them to, uh, you know, do things differently, the way that we think is a little bit less wrong. Uh, and so my lab for the last couple of years has kind of accidentally become a um, 
methodological development lab. Uh, so we have developed software tools uh, that allow people to process their data uh, differently, separating out these components um, uh, from their signals in, in the way that we think should be done. Um, and uh, all of those, all of that ability of like knowing how to write code and do software development um, and uh, like there's a lot of sophisticated data analysis tools out there that are kind of like black boxes. You like put your data in, it churns through some really complicated nonlinear algorithm for a couple hours and then it spits out some data for you. Uh, that disconnects you from your data. You're like, I don't, even, I don't even know how to interpret these results. Like, where did this come from? Why did the software and algorithms make the decisions they did? So all that software development and all of the like, let's make this code as simple uh, and as close to the data as possible uh, comes from actually my time working as a data scientist and thinking about, okay, how do I, co how do I communicate really complicated results to people uh, who are maybe non-technical uh, decision makers at a company um, in a way that they can understand? And so all of these weird experiences I have had of like writing a zombie brain book, uh, uh, you know, public communication, uh, uh, working as a data scientist, all of these things have sort of come together in this nice amalgam of, um, you know, developing new tools for people to do data analysis in ways that are uh, really, really close to the raw data that they're collecting. But like we, they can visualize and see exactly what we're doing every step of the way so that they have an intuitive understanding of how the algorithms that we're developing work. Um, all of these things are super critical for what my lab is working on because ultimately they're all to, uh, tools to address questions that we're interested in in terms of um, like human cognition and cognitive dysfunction. Uh, but in order to ask the scientific questions that we care about, we have to first write the tools uh, to analyze the data in the way that we think is going to be the, the better way to analyze the data. Well, that, that's uh, really cool to see how everything sort of comes together there and the current path that you're on. And uh, But, you know, Brad, I think going back to your students, I think you could lead them down the uh, path of studying zombie banes professionally and they'd still be uh, better off than average for having you as a mentor. So. <laughs> I think that might be the kindest thing anybody's ever said. I'll take it. Oh, that's great. Well, this <laughs> well, has been you. super fascinating to hear uh, all these different amazing, incredible experiences you've had uh, and all the ups and downs. And uh, it's just been really fun to talk to you. So thanks for taking the well, time. To, thank uh, you for having me on here, Cody. I yeah, really appreciate it. great. Cool. All uh, right. Well, uh, perfect. Good luck, on your, good luck on your studies. And uh, yeah, stay in touch. Um, thanks. Uh, uh, yeah, deal. I'm happy to talk more. All right. Cool. Perfect. <laughs> So that was my interview with Bradley Wojtek. Uh, I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope that you enjoyed listening. There's just one thing that I just want to touch on to sort of summarize it, and I think that to me what's most impressive about Brad's story is that he approaches everything from this very positive perspective. And by positive, I sort of mean in the sense of being constructive, uh, engaged, saying yes, right? So whenever an opportunity came to him, uh, he sort of took it on and built it into this bigger thing by saying, okay, I'll engage with this. And then if that's going well, if that's something interested in, let me blow it up to this next thing, right? And so it started off watching movies with his buddies in graduate school and then be like, you know, we're really, you know, like uh, got something going here. Let's write a blog post about it, turning that blog post into a book. Um, 
and then you know taking computer science class as an undergraduate having that turn out uh, to be you know one of the initial employees working for uber uh, and then even if you look at you know what he was talking about with the med school thing right someone was saying like oh well you know like there's all these things that you can do with this medical degree and his initial instinct was to be like yeah absolutely let's do it let's go that next step and it was crucial for him, obviously, to be surrounded by people, in this instance, his wife, who are going to rein him in and uh, not always take it to that next level when it doesn't make sense to do. But I think that that is a really inspiring thing to see, to have someone approach life in, in that positive way, to think about, uh, you know, sure, let me engage with this. It seems interesting to me now. And if I can follow it and turn it into something bigger, then that's great. And um, I think that that is uh, amazing to see because so often we have the opposite inclination, which is to say, oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't quite know how this is going to fit into my grander plan or, um, you know, to, to come out with a little bit more defensive position. And so much of the great stuff that we have the opportunity to experience in life is beyond the scope of our imagination of what we think our life will look like in the future. And certainly, uh, I know for most of this stuff, Brad would have never uh, in prospect thought that that was how it was gonna turn out. And um, you know, the, the cool thing is that it all came together eventually in the, in the stuff that he's doing now in his, in his current work, right? He talked about how uh, being able to talk about scientific ideas with people who are not themselves scientists or specialists and um, explain data-driven decisions to business people and Uber and uh, do software development and to have all of that inform what he's currently doing now, which sounds quite revolutionary in the field of neural oscillations. And uh, I think will be interesting to see what he makes of it in the coming decade as uh, he starts to get some traction on those grants and those projects and the methods that he and his lab have been developing are implemented in the field. So I hope that that is something that you can look at and implement in your own life to have that openness and positive uh, attitude towards things you don't know how they're going to fit into things in the future. Uh, and I know Brad has done a great job at that and that uh, certainly inspires me. So uh, best of luck with uh, whatever projects you uh, are working on now or are hopefully going to be opening to in the future. And thank you for listening. This has been Cognitive Revolution. I am Cody Connors, and I will see you next week.